Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. My name is Rick Zamprin. In this edition, Ontario wants to bring in digital IDs. Is this a good idea? We chat about the latest ups and downs in the federal election campaign, including housing affordability promises. The mu variants of COVID-19 has arrived in Hamilton. Should we be worried? And pandemic protesters continue to target hospitals. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast starts now. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. Your wallet and your cell phone may soon come together as one in this province with a digital ID. Joining us to explain what exactly is happening is Dave Fraser. He's a privacy lawyer and partner at McInnes & Cooper, and he joins us now. Good morning, Dave. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. We're chatting about uh, Ontario, uh, apparently, uh, in uh, late 2021, so I'm, I'm guessing any, any time now, uh, preparing to launch a digital identification program, which will basically mean that we will no longer have to carry a physical driver's license or a health card. Is this a good idea? Uh, certainly it can be. Um, it's definitely, I would imagine it would be a convenience for a large number of people. It reduces the number of things you have to carry. Um, and also, you know, there might be times when you go out, you forget your wallet, but you have your phone with you and you might need to provide ID. You might need to present your, your health card. So I can certainly see it as, as having beneficial components, but obviously as a privacy lawyer, I also think about what risks might be involved in that. So what are the risks that could potentially pop up? Well, there are a number of things. One is that, uh, so when you hand over somebody your driver's license uh, or you're getting carded at the liquor store, for example, uh, you have a pretty good idea what it is that they're looking at, what information they have, and and the purpose for for doing that. A lot of stuff that happens with technology, you're not necessarily sure, particularly depending on how they deploy it. So I've seen or heard of some models where you'd be able to, for example, Apple is working on this, where you'd be able to tap your phone onto some sort of reader and information is transferred digitally. You don't have visibility into what that information is that's being transferred. And also, if it's being transferred digitally, you're pretty confident that it's being recorded at the other end. Uh, But, you know, if you show proof of age to get into a bar, for example, they're going to look at it, they're going to confirm you're over the age of 19, and they haven't recorded any any data. So the the amount of information that could be collected uh, and retained and how it could be used could be problematic. For example, you're your driver's license has information about your, your height, for example, and your, your vision, which is not at all relevant for whether or not you're, you're of age to, to get alcohol. And there's also, an, I have a real concern about the possibility of handing my phone to a police officer. And my phone contains my banking information, all my emails, all my text messages. As a lawyer, it contains privileged client information that I, that I have a legal obligation to protect. Uh, and so I would be very hesitant under any circumstances to hand an unlocked phone uh, to a police officer and or to a customs officer, for example. There's now this whole kind of can pass or arrive can app that Canada Border Services Agency uh, is requiring travelers to use. And, and the CBSA, for example, is of the view that they're entitled to the contents of your phone whenever you, you cross the border. Uh, and I'm sure there's a whole lot of police officers who would think that they're entitled to flip through your camera roll if you hand them their hand them your phone. Uh, to provide proof that you're entitled to drive and that you have adequate insurance, for example. And so that's not the case? You don't have to hand over your phone? Well, you do have to, if you're stopped uh, by the police driving a motor vehicle, you do have an obligation to provide your driver's license. Um, And you do have an obligation to provide proof of insurance. 
Uh, I would be much more comfortable doing that with my physical driver's license and the pink slip for my insurance than I ever would be in handing over my handing over my phone. Um, but that doesn't mean I, I would necessarily not have that ability on my phone, for example, um, because there there may be times that it's convenient at a liquor store, for example, where mm-hmm. I'm not so concerned about agents of the state having having access to it. But I'm also would be concerned about just the app itself. Uh, you may recall the discussion and controversy that took place around the COVID alert app. Um, and there were some significant privacy concerns. It was a, a voluntary use of the app. And in order to make sure that people had confidence uh, that the app was doing exactly what it said and nothing more, uh, they made the source code for the app publicly available. And it was reviewed by security experts at BlackBerry uh, and a whole bunch of other people, kind of professional security researchers who were able to look at the code. So when a government deploys an app that they want you to install on their phone, I think it's incumbent upon them to publicly release a full, what's called a privacy impact assessment and a threat risk assessment, which governments have to prepare or should prepare in connection with any project like this. And they should make the source code available so that security experts can take a look at it and say, yeah, it's doing exactly what they say it's doing and nothing more. Uh, The province says the digital ID is not going to be stored in a central database, only saved on your own personal mobile device, which can be turned off remotely if stolen. So I guess that's the plus. Uh, Another plus, I would imagine, is it means that we don't have to stand in line for half an hour to renew our driver's license or health card. So there's another plus. Well, yeah, certainly there are going to be conveniences. and, And whenever we're making decisions about very often decisions related to convenience have a privacy trade off. And so as long as we're making conscious and informed decisions about that and governments are providing us with all the truthful information that's necessary to make those decisions, then, then we're in a position to, to make an informed decision and decide whether the, the convenience is worth it. We also need to be aware that, that not everybody has a smartphone these days. Um, and certainly I know some, for example, older couples that share a phone, that share a smartphone. And, uh, and so how are they going to manage that? And are they going to roll in proof of vaccination into that? Are they going to roll in other things? British Columbia implemented some time ago, essentially one card to rule them all, which was a combination uh, provincial ID card, driver's license and and health card in in a physical card with a chip like like your credit card would have. Um, And I would imagine this may be something similar, Um, but there's always going to be you always want to be careful about something called function creep. Is it going to be used for, for something more? Are you going to have to tap your phone to enter a government office? You're going to have to tap your phone uh, to kind of enter other, other places, um, and meaning that all that information will be recorded, whereas you generally have a right to be anonymous uh, in most places. Uh, and it's none of the government's business who you are or what you're doing. In a lot of cases, you only have to show ID in a very limited number of circumstances. Very much so. Dave, really appreciate the time. Thanks for your insight on this uh, topic, and uh, we'll chat with you sometime down the road. Sounds great. There's the uh, 411 on digital IDs. I don't know, I'm a little old-fashioned. I think I'll just keep my physical driver's license and health card handy. Uh, not to say that I'm worried about security, but I just, like, I just like holding things and having things in my hand and knowing where they are. It does make for a thicker wallet, but hey, that's the price you pay. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Riggs Amperin on 900 CHML. We're chatting about the election and some of the promises that have been made over the last uh, number of days and weeks. And this weekend was really no different with more promises, more pledges uh, from the uh, political party leaders. Yaroslav Baran is a managing principal for Earnscliff Strategy Group in Ottawa, and he joins us now uh, this morning. Yaroslav, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad. Yourself? 
Very well, thanks. We just heard a week, from... A week to go, huh? Yeah, I, I know. A week today. The, the pressure's on, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it'll be an interesting week. Definitely. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, we just heard from, wants to tax the ultra-rich to pay for pharmacare, uh, child care, dental care. Is that resonating with voters, do you think? Um, look, it is going to resonate with some voters. The question is, will it resonate with enough? Mr. Singh's challenge in this election, and it's not that different in most elections, is... Uh, you know, the NDP recognizes it's, it's the third party in stature and in mindshare. So they've got to, you know, wave their hands and try to get attention, recognizing that by and large, elections tend to be a race between the conservatives and the liberals. So the NDP will typically uh, stick their neck out with bolder promises, uh, more expensive promises, more edgy promises. Uh, they would argue more visionary promises. And that's that's the kind of thinking that, you know, that that culminates in the kinds of uh, kind of the platform ideas that we've been talking about here. At the same time, I would think that conservative leader Aaron O'Toole and and many conservative leaders of the past are saying, yeah, NDP, get your bold promises out there because you may possibly split the vote with uh, yourselves and the liberals. Um, In many parts of the country, yes. Um, You know, there's a sort of a general assumption that when the NDP does well, the conservatives do well because the NDP will bleed off votes from the Liberals. But it's also important to remember that there are many parts of the country where the race traditionally is actually between the Conservatives and the NDP, like big chunks of British Columbia, for example. Uh, Parts, you know, frankly, uh, parts of Hamilton, too. Uh, There's some writings where you've got sort uh, uh, sort of a working class vote where the NDP appeals to those voters, so do the Conservatives, but the Liberals are seen as a little bit too, you know, Bay Street, for example. Uh, suburban Halifax, you get that same phenomenon. Saskatchewan and Manitoba, same thing. Big battle between the Conservatives and the NDP. So there are all kinds of dynamics at play. You mentioned Bay Streets. Do the Conservatives have to win the GTA to win this election? They don't have to win the GTA but they definitely need a respectable showing in the GTA. If they're locked out of the GTA, like they were last time around, then I think it's fair to say that they're not going to win the election. And that's why we've seen Mr. O'Toole, for example, spending a whole lot of time in, in the 905 uh, in places like Markham and St. Catharines and uh, Oakville, you know, trying to, trying to, uh, trying to sell his message in writings that have flipped uh, back and forth sometimes between the conservatives and liberals writings that his party held, say, two elections ago, three elections ago, and trying to win them back. Yaroslav Baran is our guest, a managing principal for Earnscliff Strategy Group in Ottawa. We're chatting about the federal election campaign one week from today. Voters will go to the polls. Uh, some can go today as well. The advanced polls uh, close today, or at least the last day is today. Deadline to apply for your mail-in ballot is 6 p.m. tomorrow. Speaking of the mail-in ballots, when do you get a sense that a winner will ultimately be declared? Is it the, the following day, a day after the election, or two days after the election? That's really a function of how much interest there is in the mail-in ballots. The beginning of the election campaign, Elections Canada was estimating that up to about 5 million people might be interested in voting that way, largely because of the pandemic and you know not wanting to go out into big crowds and so on. Now, as of about a week ago, the last I heard was that they were saying that uptake was actually pretty low, that you know until that time they had requests for something like somewhere between 200 and 300,000 uh, mail-in ballots. So way short of what they thought was sort of like the outer end of it. Um, 
has there been a has there been a um, you know mad dash for these things in the last several 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 days? I don't know. We'll probably get a sense by tomorrow from Elections Canada. They'll probably release the final numbers. I'd say if more than a million people are voting online, uh, or sorry, are voting by mail-in ballot, we might end up having a wait. We may not know the results on on election night. Certainly, their worst-case scenario of 5 million would have meant that election day is going to be stretched out from September 20th until like maybe the 22nd, 23rd, as they're processing those uh, those uh, those mail ballots. Interesting stuff. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau uh, over the weekend denied wanting Jody Wilson-Raybould to lie as the SNC-Lavalin affair uh, after an excerpt uh, of the former Justice Minister's memoir, Indian in the Cabinet, was published over the weekend. How do you think Trudeau handled this latest twist? Um, his handling of this is going to depend on who you are. If you're inclined to like him, if you're inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt, you probably think his response was was fine. You know, still not ideal for this uh, for this issue to, to resurface. But if you like him, you believe him, and you think, okay, whatever, yeah, it sounds reasonable. But for people who are tired of his stuff, for people who are not inclined to vote liberal, it's a you know, it's a reminder of that of that brutal episode, which objectively we have to say was damaging to the Trudeau brand for multiple reasons. There was sort of a, a you know, quote-unquote corruption element to it. There was an anti, quote-unquote, anti-feminist dynamic to it, and so on. So issues like this will often cut according to, to, what, to what an individual voter's predispositions are anyways. And in, 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 in saying that, I'm, I'm kind of surprised that O'Toole and Singh have not jumped on this more on the campaign. Maybe it's because there's sort of a conventional approach to politics that if we've already had an election since a particular issue broke or was hot, then it's sort of a reset. It's sort of a, okay, well, the voters had their chance to pronounce on that, and now we've got to talk about other stuff. I'm not sure that's always true, but that is an assumption usually among campaigners. I've also been surprised that this issue hasn't resurfaced, even the we charity we quote-unquote you know foundation uh issue hasn't been hot in this election even though it was a pretty bloody big deal just uh, just one year ago um so that to me suggests that the internal polling of of the opposition parties suggests that voters primarily want to hear about pandemic related or economic related practical solutions to you know, get the economy back on track to help people through the next phase of you know, post-pandemic economic recovery and so on. There's got to be a reason they're not talking about it. I would hazard to guess their polling says, okay, ordinarily we might uh, have a lot of interest in the blood sport of politics, but now it's time to talk about more serious issues. What are you going to do for people? That's a good point, Yaroslav. Appreciate the time. Enjoy the rest of the election campaign. Yeah, my pleasure, and uh, good luck to your. Um, your listeners in making their final decisions over the next week. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yaroslav Baran, Managing Principal for Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Ottawa. Wake up with the information you need to get the most out of your day. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The latest modeling, which I think was released earlier on this month, says if the current rate of transmission continues, Canada could see more than 15,000 new cases a day by the beginning of October. And the beginning of October is not that far off. 
Um, we also know that the coronavirus has been mutating ever since it was first detected in Wuhan, China, back in late 2019. We have uh, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, of course, Delta, all variants of concern, the last of which has become really the most feared strain thus far. It's more transmissible uh, and is leading to infections uh, and a resurgence of infections. Uh, there's also five variants of interest, including a new one that has emerged, Mu, M-U. It was first detected in Colombia in January, and it spread to dozens of countries and has uh, made its way here to Ontario. Should we be worried about the Mu variant? Stephanie DeWitt Orr is a virologist and professor of health sciences and biology at Wilfrid Laurier University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Stephanie. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Maybe we'll start with this. What What's the difference between a variant of concern and a variant of interest? So a variant of interest is, um, as scientists, we look at new variants that come up and we look at the sequence. So um, because this is an RNA virus, the sequence is RNA, and we compare it to past viruses. And so a variant of interest is one on paper that looks like it could be worrisome. It has mutations in it that we are concerned about, Um, but it's not proven to be a problem yet. A variant of concern is one that actually in real life data shows that it's going to be a problem. So a variant of interest will become a variant of concern when we realize that it's it's more transmissible or more deadly or can escape vaccine, maybe? That's right. That's right. So um, the variant of interest is something that, oh, we think this could have some capabilities that are new. And a variant of concern is it's proven that it actually in the real world can cause problems. So should we be worried about this latest variant of interest, Mu? So um, the reason why Mu made it to um, the variant of interest category is because on paper, it's acquired um, the ability to immune evade, uh, similar to the beta variant of concern. And it also has the ability to transmit. It looks like on paper has the ability to, to transmit similarly to Delta. So on paper, it looks like it's acquired both um, advantages. Um, So that's why it's been put on the the variant of interest list. So when does it make it to the variant of concern? What do we need a certain amount of transmissions uh, for that to occur? That's a great question. I don't know the answer. (laughs) (laughs) The World Health Organization knows when it gets to a certain point. So, so far, uh, we know with Mu that it has these capabilities, but it it has yet to demonstrate them. Um, and and to be honest, the beta lineage, which looked on paper like it was going to be you know really bad um, because it could immune evade really well, uh, it didn't really take hold. So uh, I just want to stress, even though on paper this looks like it could be a concern, we really have to wait and see what happens in the in the real world. Um, to see whether those concerns pan out. Stephanie DeWitt Orr is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton. She is a virologist and professor of health sciences in biology at Wilfrid Laurier University. So does Mu have the potential to be as transmissible as Delta, or or, or is this a wait and see right now? Yeah, so that's exactly what it is. It has the potential. Um, From what the sequence looks like, from what we predict the mutations to be, it looks like it could be as trans, or I don't know if it could be as, as transmissible, but it has the capability to be as transmissible as Delta. 
Um, but you know, that really, we really won't know that until it starts and still until, you know, time passes and we see what happens. Um, I can tell you that it's, it's in all 50 states in the United States, no, 49 states in the United States. Um, and, and it's about 50% of all the cases in Colombia are the new variant. Um, so, you know, right now it's kind of like a race. If you uh, between Delta and these other variants of interest to see which one is going to dominate, and Delta has been the one to dominate now, very efficient at transmitting, um, and so the the any new variant that's going to come up is going to have to compete with Delta for people for an infection, um, and so time will tell whether Mu is going to be more efficient at transmitting or more immune evasive to, to beat out Delta. It really is a race. I guess the big question is, or one of the big questions is, will mu be vaccine resistant, and, and when do we tell that? So that we see it, when mu takes over or starts infecting a population, and you see breakthrough infections. Unfortunately, we won't know until then, until people who are vaccinated come down and become sick with mu. Um, so we, yeah, we won't know that until it until it starts happening. Is there any guesstimate of how many more variants we are going to see? It seems like, you know, every other month we're hearing of some, some new variant of uh, interest or concern. Well, and this, I think, is um, one of the reasons why it's important to get vaccinated, because um, it slows down the virus. When, when a virus is, is, uh, has the capability to, rep- when it replicates, it, um, it has the possibility of mutating. That's what viruses do. And when you have hundreds or, or thousands of people or millions of people being infected with this virus, the chances of new variants coming up increase because there's more infection, more replication, more chances to um, mutate. And you can see with um, the variants that have come up, they've arisen out of countries that have had this rapid, uncontrolled virus replication so really, the, the, the take-home message here is vaccinated communities have reduced virus replication, and so there's a reduced chance of, of the virus mutating. And then that will have a reduced chance of these variants of interest and variants of concerns emerging. But the, the thing is, this isn't just a Southern Ontario problem or a Canadian problem. This is a global problem because these variants didn't come out of Canada, they come around the world from places where there wasn't a lot of vaccines. So we really need to vaccinate not just our community, but the globe. That's a great point. Stephanie, really appreciate the time today. Thank you very much for having me. Stephanie DeWitt Orr, a virologist and professor of health sciences and biology at Wilfrid Laurier University, should point out that uh, here in Canada, 196 cases of mu have been detected nationally to date. In Ontario, there have been uh, well, several dozen cases, including 15 here in Hamilton. So it has arrived. How about some news and opinion to go with your coffee? This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. People caring for those individuals who are sick and the people that are being yelled at as they cross the street are the same healthcare workers that will save your life if you get sick, because that's our job. That is Toronto ICU physician Dr. Michael Warner taking to Twitter to condemn the protests that are being planned for later today outside uh, many Canadian hospitals, including five here in Ontario, Toronto, Barrie, London, uh, Sudbury and uh, Ottawa, as uh, healthcare workers in this province 
voicing their concerns about these protests. A group called Canadian Frontline Nurses is organizing this initiative that will be held outside of hospitals uh, really across the country. Um, we're going to talk about that and also the potential for the Pfizer vaccine and uh, the recommendations for kids aged five and up. What's the latest on that? Well, let's bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network in Toronto, one of the preeminent voices of the COVID-19 pandemic. And he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Bogosh, good morning. Hey, good morning. Um, uh, I got to say, it's really disheartening to hear the protests are not only continuing uh, across the country, but being ramped up as well. Your, your thoughts on what's going on? Yeah, in all fairness, I'm, I fully support everyone's right to protest whatever they want. This is one of the beautiful things about being in Canada. We have the freedom to do this. What I really have an issue with is making a huge commotion and fuss in front of the hospital. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. We have ambulances coming in from all sides, patients walking in from all sides, healthcare workers going in and out, and and, uh, and of course, patients inside. Like This is just not the place to have a big commotion. Then when we take a step back, we think, well, what is the topic of this? It doesn't make any sense at all, right? This is uh, people who are protesting the vaccinations that are, you know, keeping people out of hospital in the first place. So it is a bit ridiculous to have these in front of hospitals. Um, it's not a bit ridiculous. It is ridiculous to have these in front of hospitals. Uh, but but again, you know, can people protest? Absolutely. Do you really want to do this in front of a hospital? No, that's that's What's being said inside the walls? You're in the hospital, you're, you know, buzzing around, talking to colleagues, you know, uh, conversing with patients. What's being said in these hospitals? Yeah, in all fairness, it's it's interesting. I I was on call all weekend. I spent the whole weekend in the hospital. So we heard, you know, this was the topic of conversation. And, you know, some people don't care. Some people are uh, just annoyed. Most people think it's incredibly stupid. There's a couple of people that are just not going to come in today because they don't want to have to deal with this garbage. Um, you, know, you sort of start to hear all all, all sorts of things. Um, you know, it, 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 just calling it how it is, our hospital has been very supportive. I mean, uh, we heard from senior leadership in the hospital that you know they're they support the staff. They'll have extra security. There's going to be police out front because the hospital I'm working at is uh, you know there's several hospitals along a, a University Avenue in Toronto. Many of the healthcare workers have to cross the street back and forth between the hospitals. The hospital said they'll do everything they can to ensure the the safety and and of of the of the employees and and they've been very supportive of this. Well, that's good to hear. And and, and hopefully you know patients who are seeking you know much needed care uh, will will you know be allowed a safe entry into the hospital because that's one of the main fears uh, as well. Uh, let's switch gears and talk about Pfizer expected to release its vaccine recommendations for kids aged five and up. How close are we to a children's vaccine? I mean, it's nice to hear Pfizer's wrapping up those clinical studies. Um, and now it sounds like they're going to start dealing with the, regulation, the regulatory agencies. So in Canada, that's Health Canada. In the United States, that's the FDA. I mean, uh, and uh, they'll be presenting their data to the regulatory agencies probably over the next few months. That doesn't happen overnight. Like That takes a little bit of time. They really pour into all the data. And, and basically, the regulatory agencies will give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Uh, I, I think that it's fair to say that we'll probably see an approval of vaccinations for the 5 to 12 year old crowd you know maybe in the latter part of 2021 at the latest maybe it's going to be early 2022 but it's like it's it's definitely on the midterm horizon it's not ages away it's not like you know you know a year away but it's certainly not tomorrow it's probably going to be a few months from now. We're chatting with infectious disease specialist Dr. Isaac Bogosh here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. How will vaccinating kids under 12 help in the battle against COVID-19? Is this a game changer? 
Yeah, it certainly will help a lot. I mean, when we think about kids at an individual level, yeah, it will reduce the risk of them uh, getting severe infections. And we know that that's not all that common, but of course it still can happen and it does happen. You don't have to look too far to see what happens when COVID runs amok in that younger population. There are pediatric hospitals that are overflowing with patients uh, suffering from COVID-19 in many parts of the Southern United States. Kids can get very, very sick. It's not that common when we compare it to adult populations, but of course it still can happen and it does happen when you have widespread um, transmission. So it will certainly protect kids from getting very, very sick. The other thing it will do is it will create safer indoor environments and help prevent the amplification of the virus in congregate settings like schools or sporting activities. So it, it can actually help protect their close contacts like parents or grandparents or vulnerable populations that may be in close contact with them, like people with underlying um, health conditions. So it, it will help at an individual level. And of course, it will have a tremendous benefit at a population level as well. No doubt about it. And I think a lot of people are waiting with bated breath for that day to come and hopefully it'll come sometime soon. Dr. Bogosh, I wish we had more time, but we don't. Thank you for your time today. Have a wonderful day. You too. Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious disease specialist with the University Health Network in Toronto. On the protest today, um, widespread condemnation from politicians. Premier Doug Ford issuing a statement the other day basically condemning what is happening. The head of the Ontario Hospital Association calling the events disheartening. OHA President Anthony Dale issuing a statement saying, quote, It is a bitter irony that should any of these anti-vaccine protesters get sick, or seriously ill from COVID, it will be hospitals and frontline workers that they turn to for care, perhaps even to save their lives. The the very thing that these protesters are railing against, are protesting against, are the very same people who will the next day save their lives. <laughs> it's You talk about irony. That's it in a nutshell. It also leads us to our Twitter poll question today. Head to AM900CHML or at AM900CHML to be more, more accurate. Should safe zones be set up at hospitals for COVID-19 protests? I don't think anyone's saying they cannot protest. I think it's the way they are protesting. You know, outside front doors, getting in the way of people accessing hospitals. Should safe zones be set up at hospitals for COVID-19 protests? 64% say yes. Uh, just shy of 36% voting no. You can make your voice heard on CHML's Twitter feed at AM900CHML. Serving up a healthy dose of news, traffic, and engaging opinion. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900CHML. We are chatting with uh, Dr. Paul Kershaw from UBC. And uh, Dr. Kershaw has a Federal Election Voter's Guide and Study about housing prices and housing affordability and what a time to do so, because that's one of the hot topics in this federal election campaign. Uh, We say good morning to Dr. Kershaw. How are you? I'm well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Well, thanks for coming on, because this is, as as you well know, a a hot-button topic, because housing affordability is, well, it's quite unaffordable these days. Well, and no more so than in Hamilton. It's such a bellwether for all that is wrong in our housing system. Let me just provide the context. Back when my mom started out in the housing system as a baby boomer, in Hamilton, it would have taken four years of full-time work to save a 20% down payment on an average-priced home. If you flash forward to today, it now takes 13 years in Hamilton. 
That's like a decade of work lost to young folks today when they're trying to save for their major cost of living. And when homeownership becomes out of reach, their consolation prize sucks. It's rising rent. And that is the, the way in which our economy right now, including in Hamilton, is making hard work not pay off in the way that it used to for younger folks. Your study had two questions. One, is any party doing enough to end the housing affordability crisis? Two, which platform aligns more with the evidence about what's required to restore affordability? What did you find? Yeah, and I'll just underscore that I am absolutely nonpartisan with no alliance to any particular party and didn't prejudge or have any hopes about how the analysis would play out. In order to assess whether all the, any party is actually doing enough to restore affordability, uh, what we've done is we've worked with at my lab at UBC with colleagues who are in the community who are experts and other academics across the country to develop a framework that identifies 15 clusters of action items. So in other words, there's no silver bullet that pro- parties can promise, but there could be silver buckshot. And we looked and asked, did any platform tick off all 15 action items? And regrettably, the answer is not even close. No party came close to ticking off all 15, which means we continue to expect that housing will remain unaffordable and the large gap between home prices for renters and aspiring owners beyond what locals are earning in jobs will continue. But if you're interested in the horse race, then what I can tell you is that, you know, some parties align more with the evidence about what we need to do to fix the system than others. The Liberals are ticking off two-thirds of the action items. The NDP and Greens are ticking off about one-third of the action items. And the Conservatives are ticking off about one-quarter of the action items. Is it as simple as just increasing the housing supply? No. Increasing housing supply is absolutely critical, especially to supply the right kinds of homes. So we don't just want to be building studios and one-bedroom units that are condos. That's great for often investors, but who wants to raise a family of two with one child in a closet? We need to be building bigger uh, units with multiple bedrooms that are appropriate for families. We need to build more purpose-built rentals. So, yeah, we need to do that. But housing is the interaction of supply and demand, and so we need to do a range of things to dial down harmful kinds of demand. And and here's really the rub. This is, you know, we often say, oh, it's some foreign buyer or some money launderer or someone who's leaving a home empty. And those are issues, big issues across our cities. But what we haven't yet grappled enough with is that rising home prices aren't uniformly bad or uniformly good. It depends when you got in the housing system. And so I will disclose, I'm a homeowner. And as home prices have been rising, I've been getting more wealthy. But what's making me better off is making those who work just as hard as me and they're just as smart as me, but they're just younger than me or they're a newcomer to our region, they can't actually afford to live where I do, even though they've done nothing wrong. And that is the rub. We haven't actually grappled with that at the cultural level. Canadians are quite dare I say, addicted to high and rising home prices, which is why no party is actually promising the following thing. To restore affordability for all, we actually need to commit to having home prices stall so that earnings can catch up. And no party has been brave enough to say that yet, and that's a fundamental weakness in all of them. How do we get housing prices to stall? Well, you do a range of things. You talk about adding supply like you already started. You talk about thinking about dialing down the harmful kinds of demand. But you actually reorient more generally to say there are a range of incentives that cause people to want home prices to rise, whether that's we've got tax shelters on housing that allow us to get a better investment return by housing than almost any other part of the economy. We have um, interest rates where we're increasingly encouraging people to borrow more and bid up the cost of housing um, as opposed to trying to help people save more and, and ultimately invest increasingly outside of housing. So what the key thing we need to do, though, is have a goal that we don't want, say, home prices to rise any longer for the next maybe until 2030. And that would give our earnings a chance to catch up. But if we don't have that goal, we can't reorient every public policy tool available to us 
to address that goal. And that is sort of the fundamental weakness of platforms. They're sending mixed signals because, you know, sometimes we're still wanting home prices to rise. Other times we're not. If we're not clear in what we want from the housing system, we're not actually going to get a new outcome. Great insight from Dr. Paul Kershaw from the University of British Columbia. Dr. Kershaw, thanks for your time today and enjoy the rest of your day. You as well. Have a great day. Yeah, that was pretty cool. The findings in terms of the study that uh, Mr. Kershaw Uh, conducted. Some platforms align more with the evidence than others. The Liberals promised to address two-thirds of the action items in this study. The NDP and Greens promised to address one-third when it comes to housing affordability. The Conservatives promised to address one-quarter. Certainly housing affordability in this area is top of mind for many individuals, especially, especially those who can't afford to buy a home. Um, You know, the average price here in Ontario, north of $800,000 $800,000 when you include, you know, Burlington, the Hamilton Burlington Realtors Association. The average price of a home in Niagara, well over 700000 I mean, that area has exploded with many um, retirees from the GTA wanting a, a more serene uh, environment for their retirement. So, yes, Niagara is much more serene than the hustle and bustle of the GTA. So those house prices have been climbing for uh, months and months now. Branford, one of the hottest um, housing markets in the country. Average price in that city, and it's barely 100,000 people in that city, now well over $700,000. House prices are jacked up in the Golden Horseshoe, that is for sure. This is Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zamperin on 900 CHML. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.